Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play or buy or look at next. And I guess that's the purpose of this show. It's to talk to the people that make the games that we know and love, to talk about big industry events, and to talk, you know, talk to the folks who love playing these games. Well, today we're technically not talking to a game guy. And by when I say that, he is a game guy because without the games, I'm not sure he would do everything that he does. But uh, it is often said that when you look at a beautiful table of terrain, it's almost like the picture frame and the backdrop for a masterpiece. And then, of course, with the Mona Lisa, you have the Mona Lisa in the middle, and that would be, you would have uh, your armies, so to speak, on the canvas. Pardon the terrible metaphor, it's early here. But the Mona Lisa wouldn't be the Mona Lisa without that background. And, of course, that goes for any of the classics. And that's what we're talking about today. It's the terrain on the table. And if we're talking about setting up a fantastic-looking table to play the games that we know and love, there's really only one guy that we can talk to. And that's the man who's literally known as the Terrain Tutor, Mel Bowes. Welcome to Cast Dice. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on, mate. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. Uh, I have been hmm. watching your videos for quite a while, particularly the ones uh, making Jungle Train for your Burma uh, table, which, you know, what, we're up to, is it 12 videos now for that? Um, yeah, but there's plenty more to come on that project. <laughs> so many good. Yeah, I because I bought a couple of plants, uh, you know, a bunch of different plastic plants, but they were the same two types. And I was thinking, yeah, this is probably going to be okay. And then I watched a couple of your videos and went, okay, I need about 100 more different kinds. And so I've been going to Ikea and finding plastic <laughs> plants. No, not, not so many. You know, you need core two in a couple of a couple of spots. Yeah, that's true. what you really need when you're going for plastic plants and that sort of stuff. Well, I am going to ask you about that in a minute, but let's let's <laughs> dig into who you are. Now, I know that a lot of listeners for the show know who you are because a lot of people were talking about your book uh, when it was in the Kickstarter phase, and of course, we're talking about yep. Terrain Essentials, and we'll get to that in a minute. But how did you become the Terrain Tutor? How did that, how did your YouTube channel start out? Clearly, you were doing terrain before that. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, I mean, my my interest in terrain goes back to my childhood. Uh, Mum used to own a craft shop. Uh, she was a single mother. We lived in a remote Welsh town, mm -hmm. so not much childcare. And I, I, I pretty much, you know, if I wasn't at school, then I was in a craft shop. Uh, in the corner of the craft shop, there was a small display for what you call it, for like railway scenic materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I used to build things for what you call it, for... Uh, for me to play with like the plastic green army men, you know, the railway guys would come in, give me some tips, drop some things off, that sort of stuff. Uh, about, about 10, I started to make airfix kits and have war games between them, firing elastic bands between them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And polystyrene landscapes that were utterly awful, but at the time, amazing. Right. Uh, then, then watch what, about 15. Yeah. I, we moved back to, to England. Yeah. And we'd been living in quite a remote Welsh village, yeah, uh, up until then. And I discovered White Dwarf and I discovered wargaming and, you know, uh, it just naturally flowed from then. And I've, I mean, I was a bit, 
my th- I remember getting was it third edition? Well, I bought third edition uh, Warhammer Fantasy Battle, mm-hmm. but I remember it. I bought that just watch gullet uh, as they switched over to was it fourth edition with Blood Island? Yep. Yeah, with the elves and the goblins. So uh, you know, fourth, I, fifth. I was actually debating that with people at a bachelor's party on the weekend. Is yeah, mm-hmm. it's. Fourth or fifth. I, I'm, I'm not quite. I'm a lot better on my road trader editions, to be truthful. But the Ditto. fancy. But I, I basically, I, you know, about 16, I came in and watched it at the same time. Games Workshop opened up, you know, the first store in my city at the same time. You know, I had a couple of college mates who were wargaming. And, you know, before the army was painted, yeah, uh, you know, I'd already started to build terrain for the table. Brilliant. You know, I mean, it, literally, I mean, before I, we were playing, I mean, my first war games were played with, what you call it, uh, if you remember in the set, they had cardboard buildings, a church and a mm-hmm. lookout tower. Yeah. And before I'd, we'd assembled the miniatures, we were learning to play and the, the, the cardboard buildings were already based. Yeah. And extended. Uh, right. I'd already uh, made some tree bases and some woods for the table. Yeah, and the and then I started putting the miniatures together. That is yeah. Cool. So the terrain definitely came before the game for me. Yeah, that yeah. is uh, uh, not the usual uh, the usual reply I would get uh, for people on this show. But you know, given your channel, that makes absolute sense. And to be perfectly honest, what you call it? We lived a bit out of the city, and I picked up the box set. But prior to that, uh, I didn't have any plastic glue. Yeah, so oh, we funny. were we were due to go back into town where I could pick some up because this is days before internet and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, so you had to go to a shop. Oh yeah, and so it was two weeks before I could actually glue the models. Yeah, and they were really loose slotter bases oh, yeah, as well, were. so that what you know you couldn't even just push slot them. Yeah, and so, but at the same time. My mum still had quite a lot of craft stuff around. You know, she hadn't worked, run the craft shop for years. But, you know, it's like, right, well, I know there's these bits and I know there's this. And, mm-hmm. oh, you know, dig out the garage, you know, rip some trees off that thing. You know, and so for the crafting side of making the terrain for wargaming, I already sort of felt like I knew that. You know, I really mm-hmm. didn't. I mean, I, I'm, it's 20 years, 30 years later and I'm still learning, you know, but... Right. It definitely came before the game. And I think what you call it, the, the thing that really captivated about me was my mates who were playing it, they were slightly into war games as well, you know. And they, you know, when they first came around and sort of to learn like Warhammer, yeah, the fact mm-hmm. that I'd got a table, right. you know. And I think prior to that, what you call it, uh, I'd picked up some war game scenery I'd seen in a shop in Wales when I, on a holiday with, with a girlfriend, just out of interest, with not actually planning wargaming. And so I'd also got some resin pieces that had been knocking around, like a goblin village and a, a stone circle. So, you know, I based those up and, you know, flocked them up and everything. And so, um, you know, my, I, I, although we played with, what do you call it, uh, grey models with the glue still smelling on them, mm-hmm. you know, I had a table which, okay, not, didn't look like a GW table, but for all the sort of terrain assets you would have in White Dwarf for a war game. Yeah. I mean, you've got to remember, I mean, I, I adopted, uh, what was it? Uh, the Battle of Blood Eagle Pass was my first White Dwarf, uh, 124. Brilliant. Yeah, which was the tw- the first battle report in mm-hmm. White Dwarf. Yeah, which was the 24-hour battle. That's right. You know, so I read that was my my initiation 
you know, and I read that and looked at the photos and yeah, oh, I'm having some of that. Yeah, you know exactly, I mean? and right? Still, and I am literally still neck deep in it. Yeah. You know, 40, <laughs> I was a 45-year-old and I'm quite happy with that situation, how it turned out, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, you know, my friends were really like, you know, damn, we've got a gaming board. You know, and it was, you know, I had a green board, I'd painted it, God, but, you know, I'd, I mean, my mum had watched, got, got me a six foot by four foot ply, plywood board, yeah, but at the same time, she colour matched it to Goblin Green, mm-hmm. yeah, so, you know, it looked good for the time, yeah, and so oh, yeah. terrain, and to be truthful, trying to game was always a little bit challenging, yeah, because of college and then joining mm-hmm. the army and that sort of stuff, and yeah, but the interest in making terrain and that sort of stuff was always hanging around and my interest in modelling in yeah. general because of, you know, my youth and that sort of stuff. Also, I grew up in North Wales. Yeah, now North Wales, uh, it's a, a massive mountain range for, you know, it's a national park. We've got, it's got miles of beautiful coastland. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and so I spent a lot of time in my youth, you know, in what we would call the typical greenfield country, mm-hmm. you know. You know, and everything you can imagine on a, a typical wargaming board was where I played. You know, the beaches, yeah. the cliffs. Well, that's where I went with my mates after school. My school was a mile away from what you call it, the creek. Oh, that's so cool. You know, if I wanted to see my family in Stoke, you know, uh, which was would be about 90 minutes away from where we lived, we'd have to drive through Snowdonia Mountain Range, which includes Snowdonia, which is the highest peak in England in the UK mm-hmm. and so quite often you know many times a year we'd be driving through mountain ranges you know no matter what the weather and they do change a lot in the UK depending on the weather you know in the summer you won't see any snow in the winter back when I was a kid you know there would be routes that you couldn't pass anymore you know what I mean and if you got stuck in snow the locals would come and get you out of the car because mm-hmm. you'd freeze you know what I mean that sort of oh, situation yeah. so I grew up a lot around nature as well yeah. So that's always been a, a big thing for me. And then and anyone who serves loves the nature because I think, I mean, waking up, you know, just before dawn, sitting on a hill in the Black Forest, watching the mist through the pine trees and the fir tree, it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, and you never get to see, I mean, in all honesty, yeah, I didn't serve in act, any active deployment. I was a peacetime soldier. You know, I did a bit of traveling and I was a medic, so... You tend to always work as a medic. You, you tend to sort of work more when it's not wartime because soldiers tend to be very sensible during wartime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you put them alone in a room for 12 hours with nothing to do. And <laughs> yes. You're going to hear a medic called, you know, something's stuck to something. Something's been stuck in something or mm-hmm. someone's got drunk and gone through something, yeah. you know, but, you know, end of Friday night, you're on a med call, yeah. you know, so. But I, you spend a lot of time you know, camping out, living in nature. So I've always had a really close affiliation to nature, uh, model making with my mother. And so the terrain building has always been a big element of wargaming for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, Absolutely. I like my armies. I'm an okay painter, mm-hmm. you know, I'm better than tabletop. Yeah, you are. I've seen I am nowhere near, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, no one, I don't think anyone would really follow me for my painting advice. You know, and I'm happy with that. You know, it's nice enough that when I look down on a table at my armies, yeah, they look nice. And if I take a nice photo, they look nice. Exactly. Yeah. But beyond that, you know, my passion in painting my armies isn't is nowhere near as my 
my passion for creating the lands land top landscape they, they sort of battle over yeah you well, know for me that's the real thing yeah it's funny how i mean from my own experience i grew up in the in the mean streets of tokyo and by that i mean the concrete jungle and there's nothing mean about tokyo in the 80s it was a very peaceful nice place to grow up but uh, I just never had room for terrain. And so for me and my friends, uh, you know, we we played on what we could. And I, I, I'm on this podcast. I've talked very fondly about these epic battles of, you know, Rogue Trader 40K and Second Ed 40K, where we created, uh, you know, spaceship battles on the insides of spaceships. Um, but, you know, that was all in our imagination because though we put together our models, and <clears throat> I know exactly what you mean by loose slots because we often taped them wrap tape around the peg at the bottom to slide it into the hole to make it <laughs> stay because finding uh, the right glue in Tokyo wasn't always the easiest thing. But we painted mm -hmm. everything, and so we were, we would play. But the terrain we were playing on were stacked books, stacked cassette yeah. tape cases. And, you know, in my mind, if I think about it now, I think spaceship. I think, you know, airlocks. I think walls. I think, you know, girders, gantries. In reality... It was just whatever we had around the house stacked up. And, you know, it wasn't till I got to play in my first U.S. Grand Tournament that I actually set out one of my armies on a proper table of terrain. And we're, we're, we're talking like feel? 50. Oh, my God. It was amazing. It was like, you, you know, I had never seen anything like that. And not only that. Not only did my army did suddenly come to it, life. Yeah, but, you, you didn't yeah. feel that, did you? Like but it you're was, suddenly more connected and Yeah, but so it was yeah. Did you win that game or did you lose it? Um I that very first game, I think I lost. Uh, and but, how, was that loss harder? Did you feel more connected to your army? It so I had flown up from Baltimore. Sorry, I lived in New Orleans at the time. I was in university, uh, and I flew up to uh, Baltimore to spend the night. Back then, holiday uh, the grand tournaments were at a Holiday Inn, and so you had to buy a hotel room as part of your ticket. You had to stay there, and it was fully catered, uh, and it was this all-immersive uh, experience. It was fantastic. And um, for me to walk in the room the first day, I ran into a fantasy player at the airport who um, also hadn't finished his army. I was playing 40K. Um, we bumped into one another, and he was carrying a magic box, and I was carrying, uh, I think I was carrying a Land Raider. Anyway, he looked at me, I looked at him, and went, you're here for the Grand Tournament. And so we checked in, and we happened to be on the same hall, and so he came to my room, and we painted all night. And so we walked into that hall the next day, but it wasn't just one table that I set my army up on. It was you know, an entire massive uh, event space that was wall-to-wall, yeah. tabletop perfection as far as terrain went, as far as my memory goes. It may have been very basic. I don't believe it was because a lot of it was games day terrain because they really wanted to sell this is the United States Grand Tournament experience um, because it was the yeah. first one. But my God, to walk into that room and to see all that terrain and to see everyone pull out their armies. And of course, as you were saying earlier, pre-internet, really. So, yeah. you, you, you know, to look at the armies that people were pulling out, it was like opening a white dwarf. And, you know, back you then see, that meant something. I often think that a lot of new gamers and a lot of people who, who come to really don't appreciate how far. I mean, we right. 
the hobby itself and the models have come a long way. Yeah. Yeah. But if I'm honest, yeah, I am still playing with, you know, metal casts and plastic models mm -hmm. that really haven't gone that far. I mean, GW are doing some amazing kits. Yeah. Yeah. But if you look at the games, the tables we used to play over, and then you look over the tables mm -hmm. we play now, yeah. that's been a huge shift. It has. You know, in technology, in standards, in acceptability, you know, yep. in aspirations. It was one of those Just, things that after going to that event, you know, I would fly back for the grand tournament every year, but I didn't have anyone to play when I was in New Orleans. So I didn't have any terrain. I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to build my army for the next year. And I would get to play once a year at the grand tournament. And that's what I did. And then um, I went to enough grand tournaments and eventually I was hired out of them and ended up working for uh, games workshop itself and sales. Yeah. Many of you know that, but um, out behind my desk was the door that opened up into the Baltimore battle bunker. So it was mm -hmm. a room of the mm -hmm. terrain, and it was brilliant. Yeah. But then you end up working crazy sales hours, especially in Christmas season. And Christmas season was September 1st to mid-January. So you wouldn't ever get to play because you were working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. So you were never able to play during when the battle bunker was open. And on weekends, you didn't want to be anywhere near that building again. So it was, you know, you would go home and you're like, yeah, I really want to play because I work for the company. I'm talking about it all day, but I don't want to leave my house. I'm exhausted. And my roommates were all guys who worked for the company. And so we got yeah, this point. We're like, cool, we're going to go play. But then we set up tables, but none of us had terrain again because we were mm. so used to playing. And so we got to this point where we just said, all right, forget this. And we all went out and contributed and bought some terrain and we had a full set. But even then, um, I mean, it took seven, 18 years, 17, 18 years before I ever had my own terrain going into <laughs> That's a long journey, mate. And I, I mean, countless armies at that point, but I mean, it's, that's a long time. Um, and I contrast that with what you said. Do you think if you had your terrain earlier, it would have made a big, from your experience of getting the terrain at that point, do you wish you'd made your terrain earlier? Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I just know from my experiences that either I would have, I lived in a place, you know, my family's apartment in Tokyo was, would fit in my living room now. Yeah, of um, course. <laughs> and so there wasn't really anywhere to put it. And then at the other side of that, when I got to New Orleans, I had tons of space, but I had nowhere to play or no one to play. So yeah. I think, unfortunately for me, it was when I, I got terrain when, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, I have people to play. I have armies to play with, and I have space. Let's do this. Um, but, you know, I always wished that I could do it. I mean, looking at the pictures in Rogue Trader way back when, mm. that was my first wow, gotcha moment for terrain. Of course, then you start subscribing to White Dwarf, and then the world opens up. And then you're down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to get to something, and I, I, I am – I, I'm loving the the talk down memory lane, but I want to bring it to something that's in your book, Train Essentials. Okay. It's from Dave Taylor Miniatures uh, production. You know, it's a book much like Dave's first book. And Dave was on here not too long ago, a couple of years back, talking about armies, legions, and hordes, uh, which was his book on 
you know, how to tackle an army project. Uh, it's on my shelf. Yeah. I read it all the time. Fantastic book. Now, your Only book is the project management book for the hobby. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yours is the, the logical progression of that. It's so this is how you handle the armies. That's Dave's book. Now let's talk about the terrain, which is yeah. your book. Now I have a I have a lot of questions about specifics within the book, but let's let's talk about that journey. How did you get to becoming an author? I mean, being a successful YouTuber is one thing, but then turning that around and then writing, you know, a desktop or a coffee table book about how to successfully create terrain, the essentials. Well, how did that come to be? Well, I'm, I'm new to the community as the terrain tutor, and that's where I'm known as. But mm. uh, long before I came to YouTube, I was actually on the interwebs in the community as someone called Cole Cobain. Yeah, and I run. Oh. A, I used to run a, an Imperial Guard blog called yes. Watchlet, Corbania Prime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Watchlet. At the, ta- at the same time, Dave was running his, his blog, Dave Taylor mm-hmm. Miniatures. But he was focusing on doing a blood pact army. He was. Yeah. And, you know, we, we sort of had banters backwards and forwards with both being guard based. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And Dave likes his conversions. I was doing a lot of conversions and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff at the time. Yeah. And then he wanted a blood pact tattoo. And my wife at the time was a tattooist. Nice. Yeah. So she sort of sketched up a design and I sent over the idea to him and he went off like a derivative of, you know, it formed an idea that he went off and ended up with the tattoo. Well, anyway, you know, uh, I went through some family and life problems and sort of stepped away from the community and then sort of came back later, you know, when things had settled as Mm -hmm. the terrain tutor. Yeah. Sort of chasing, you know, my, my passion for terrain. Yeah. And. I sort of reconnected up with Dave and that sort of stuff. And he was coming over uh, to salute. Yeah, the, yeah. About a year before we did the Kickstarter, the April before. Yeah. So 2018. And what you call it? He, he was coming over and he said, listen, you're, you're at salute. Do you want to meet up? Do you want to go for Do you want to have a, a drink the night, you know, the night before meet up in the hotel? Cause we're in the same hotel. So yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Cause I, you know, sit down with him, you know, chat for years. So sat down with him and, you know, he got me a vodka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he got me. And I was down there. I was down there to to film. Yeah, to film salute, film the tables for yeah. my show video and watch. I got my oppo. Watch got my mate. Watch got Jace with me. You know, and yeah, John Vodka. Yeah, John Vodka. Yeah, John Vodka. John Vodka. This sounds very familiar. Yes. Yeah, and then you know, drunkenly head off to the watch call. And the next morning, I wake up in a very rough state. And the first thing I, I look at Jason, and I went. Did I agree with Dave that I'd do a book mm-hmm. with him last night? And Jace went, yeah. <laughs> I went, I really want to do that. And yeah. so, you know, first thing in salute, went to find Dave, who was also a little bit worse for wear, and yep. just say, right, we had a chat. Yeah, now I'm sort of sober. Let's talk. Yeah, and he actually came out after that salute, watch call it, a couple of days later, he came up to Stoke to spend, watch call it, a day or two with me. Yeah. Yeah, and we spent time in the studio, talked it all out, and it was like, yeah, this is something that's that's doable. You know, and that's where the idea of, well, that's why, why, how I ended up being an author, because if Dave hadn't have got me drunk, yeah, I, I wouldn't have pursued it myself. I would have just carried on with what you call it, focusing on YouTube completely. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I have no idea about writing books, you know what I mean? Or publishing them or distributing them. So it would have been too big of an endeavor for me to even consider. But the idea of working with Dave, who I knew, yeah, Dave knows books. 
Yeah, absolutely. And at the time, he was promoting his Kickstarter, mm-hmm. you know, for armies, legions, and hordes. That's where he was over at Salute Four. That's yeah. right. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. So that you know, I, I knew right. Well, he's done it. You know, David knows books. He's done a book. He's done the kick. He can do this. You know, all I've got to do is this. And hey ho, you know, yeah. a couple of years later, Terrain Essentials is born. The man's uh, enthusiasm is infectious, but not only that, you know he's got the skill to back it up, which is the, you know, which is the best part. Uh, Just, I mean, I I guess I lived with Dave before, um, you know, before he went solo and when he worked for the company. And so it was always these grand ideas would come out, but he didn't always have uh, the agency to make them happen back in the day, other than for these incredible armies, which he would pull out of a hat. Uh, Mm. And, you know, when you sat and watched him do it, you would just go that, you know, your drive and your creativity is out, you know, it's second to none. And the fact that I he was able Dave to wants turn to that. leave a mark on the community. He does. You know, I mean, every, yeah. I mean, everything when I speak to Dave and I've spent a lot of time with Dave, mm-hmm. I consider him one of my closest friends now, you know, and what you call it, everything, you know, he does is about the community. Exactly. Even the little things. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we went, we went to, to games workshop. You know, and I uh, to Warhammer World when he was over mm-hmm. for the Kickstarter. We just called in, you know, see some people. You know, he wanted to catch up with old work friends like yeah. you do when you're in in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were going round. And I, I think, what you call it, I hadn't been in a games workshop for quite a while. And I wanted a painting handle. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was in the store and I just went, all right, you know, it's, it's what, Fiverr. You know, I'll just grab this. Mm-hmm. You know, and Dave sort of pulled me up on it. To sort of say, why aren't you buying that for an FLGS? Yeah, exactly. You know, it, like, and from my point of view, like, I'm in GW. You've, we've just we're in the middle of a Kickstarter that's just done some serious numbers. Mm-hmm. I'm buying, you know, I'm buying the five pound tool mm-hmm. for a bit of convenience. But for him, it was something that no, you should be supporting the community so much that exactly. he pulled me aside for it on so, something that I didn't even consider was worth considering. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's when I really realized that, yeah, Hal, he is really driven for the community. He is. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Even to the fact, you know what I mean? And when you when I became aware of that and you sort of see everything he does, I mean, all the work he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's teaching. It's yeah. showing people. It's helping people. It's putting things together. It's making things happen. He may not be the lead, but he's the machine that makes these things happen with his consultancy and stuff like that. And I honestly don't think that the industry and the hobby really realize the effect that Dave Taylor has actually had behind the scenes, you know, in, in furthering this sort of hobby, especially yeah. with the explosion of independence and the work he's done, bringing them up and supporting them. Literally the next you know? words out of my mouth. Yep. That's, I mean, that's, I mean, be, when Dave um, went, solo and started his consultancy um, and started working with the smaller companies and some larger ones too. Mm. I mean, it, it's really that it's to support the Lord. I mean, yes, it's his business. Yes. It's his livelihood, but it goes beyond that. There's a reason he chose that. No, there's a calling. Exactly. You know, if it was about money, he'd do something different or he'd do some, or whatever he does, he would do it differently to mm. maximize the cash. And Dave doesn't No. Yeah, I'm not saying Dave, you know, he doesn't care about money. We all care about money. We've yep. got bills paid. But, exactly. you know, you can see that there is, a, for, for want of a better word, a moral cause that exactly. drives, that's, that factors into his decision making beyond financial. You know, he Definitely. cares. And I think if you go back to the fact that, you know, he is promotion, he is events based. 
you know, he literally, you know, his career in Games Workshop, okay, he's got a lot of publishing experience from War Games Illustrated and stuff like that. But his initial career was community building. It was. You know, and mm-hmm. I think I think it's just stuck with him now. It's literally part of him, like terrain is part of me. You know, he wants to build communities. He wants to pull things together and pull people together and pull projects together because that's what Dave does. Yeah. I mean, that's why he ended up writing a project management book. Exactly. Because uh, that's what Dave's really good at, pulling the right people together, yeah, for the mm-hmm. right project. And he nails it. That's right. Well, let's let's talk about that book for a second. And um, I I could not agree more about that. But I think Dave will probably start you know embarrassing uh, embarrassed to write me a nasty note if I if I start chiming in with stories from my time when he was at GW. Um, we'll save those until we meet at Adepticon. Exactly. Oh God. Hopefully one of these days I can get over to Adepticon. Um, but with right. armies, legions, and hordes, of course, as you say, it's a project management book. It it's an army building how to do it. It's not just. I mean, it would be really easy to say these are the units that you should take in an army. This is what you'd want to consider. Again, that's very a game-specific, uh, game-centric view that the book doesn't take because, of course, it, it addresses army building sort of agnostically across lots of mm. games. But it was really the first time. I mean, there have been some isolated articles in different gaming magazines, White Dwarf, uh, War Games Illustrated, about how to approach army building. But Dave's book beautifully, you know, takes you through how to ideologically, you know, start from uh, that spark of inspiration and how to how to follow through, how to deal with burnout, how to mix things up, how to plan a coherent scheme, how to have, you know, how to incorporate narrative. It, It really digs in and gives you lots of great examples that is truly inspiring, which is why all these years later, I still flipping through that damn book um it's a but i mean it would be very easy to go down certain rabbit holes but it gives you a beautiful overall view and then so many inspiring pictures and i think he's really working with you um and the way that you've worked through terrain essentials it's handled it for terrain as well i i love how it isn't just a book of this is how you make a tree this is how you you know make a hill the bits that I got the most out of, um, and there's a, so many great tips and tricks, but it's it's more the project planning, how to approach when you look at that blank canvas, how do I start yeah. to paint the broad sp- strokes in, so to speak? How do I know what to put in? Because though I spend you know more hours than I care to even consider planning armies, themes, ri- to the ridiculous nth degree, I honestly, when I look at a table, go, okay, I need some roads for my trucks. I need some hills. I need some trees, some dense terrain. I need some line blocking terrain. Cool. And it'll all be variable so I can mix it around all the time. But I don't actually consider what's the narrative. What's the story? Yeah. And it wasn't until years later when I was planning events that were more narrative focused that I went, oh, I really do need more terrain on this table, if only to tell the story. Um, yeah. And your book beautifully says that. Now, I love um, that you have the, the triangle uh, of durability, yeah. realism, and functionality, and how you, you know, say events, event terrain needs to lean more towards durability, um, functionality. 
talk to us a little bit about, because I mean that, I mean, just like Dave's book, like the way that you talk about terrain in your book really makes me want to re you know, replan every single bit of terrain I have. And I own nine tables of terrain. Like how does the, how does the durability realism functionality, how did that come? I mean, it's very straightforward when I look at it, but I wouldn't have thought of it. If that makes sense. To be truthful, it's something that's evolved. Yeah, that's evolved over time. Uh, I've, I've been involved with terrain making and war game for donkey's years. Mm. But I've worked with clubs, you know, we've put on tournaments, we've made terrain, we've had terrain days for that. I've done commissions in the early days of the terrain tutor for big companies and for private collectors. And the one of the biggest problems, yeah, with making terrain is decision making. Do I, don't yeah. I, what should I do? Does this need to go on, you know? And so the triad is very much designed to sort of say, right, let's make some decisions about what you want out of the train right from the start, regardless of what you're building. The triad doesn't care if you're building a mountain or a volcano or a spaceship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't factor. It's just what it's going to be used for. What's its point, you know? Exactly. Is it going to be carefully played on and needs to look beautiful in a private collector's or is some six year old with sticky fingers going to be like hammering it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at some overrun convention. And so to make terrain that lasts and suits the game, you really need to know, you know, those decisions up front because they decide, right, what materials am I going to use? You know, how long am I going to invest in painting this? I mean, there's the old adage that, you know, you're doing tournament terrain, base coat it, dry brush it, flock it, put it on next. Yeah. Yeah. So it also helps decide, right, what's the level of paint scheme that I put on this piece? You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like with models, you know, and especially with terrain, because it is never ending and often it's unique. And where do you stop tweak, tweaking and tinkering and adding little details? Yeah. The triad works by saying, look, what does it need to be? Does it need to be simple, tough, functional, so people, loads of people can play games over it and it can take the hammer of being thrown in and out of tote boxes, mm-hmm. you know? Or is it going to sit in a private collector's or is it part of a gaming club so it needs to fit with loads of other things, you know? And the knowing how the train's going to be used and what it's for and making that decision how that affects how you build the train from the outset, yeah, means that the train, everything you build will be built for that environment, which means you're not going to be going into it. You're not going to be wasting time on pieces that, you know, don't need time wasting on because to be truthful, the tournament players don't care if it's painted or not. You know, they're just Mm -hmm. angry that half of them have had to paint their own armies. They just want to win. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But at the same time, you know, there's a realism and, you know, demo boards and all that sort of stuff. And so it's a decision maker and it guides the building process because when you're being creative, which is what terrain making is, mm-hmm. yeah, when you paint a model, the model's pretty much built for you. Yeah, you're just mm-hmm. applying paint to it. Yeah, when you're building terrain, you're coming up with a 3D piece from nothing. Yeah, its specification is completely down to you. You build it, its detailing is down to you. You're painting everything. And so there's a lot more decision making and a lot more opportunities to make the wrong decision or to put too much effort in or, you know, not make it functional because you want to go down, you know. So making decisions right at the outset helps sort of pull your creativity in and and guide it. It's not to constrict it. It's to guide it to make sure you create good pieces that, you know, you aim to make. 
Exactly. I mean, there's lots of times when you start training and you start making one thing. Yeah. And you end up actually making something completely different. Yes. In games yes. and durability and functionality, functionality wise. You know, there's loads of us that have made like, right, I need some, you know, some woods for a wargaming table. And we've gone into it and we haven't really considered the durability. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to playing a couple of games in, we realized I really should have made them a bit more durable. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, I mean, I was so excited front. Uh, when I was talking about making my terrain with the Games Workshop guys way back when we didn't consider any of that. It was cool. We'll get terrain. We'll put it on the table. And then that was great when, as you said, in the house, we had shelf that we put terrain on. But then mm. when I started moving and I moved, what, five cities in, I think, three years after that, by the time I moved to Australia and I actually shipped my part of that terrain over, which was a board, um, because it wasn't just a mat. It was an actual MDF or not MDF, yeah. um, foam board that you would fold out and put over a table and then foam hills. Yeah. By the time it got here and I played with it a couple of times, it was destroyed. Uh, it just yeah. was never intended for that. But when I bought it originally, I was thinking, sure, this looks great. But I'd never thought about exactly what you're talking about. I'd never considered that durability, the functionality of it. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, for the amount of time that we put into terrain, you know, having it durable and making it work and fit what you're trying to build it for. I mean, there's nothing worse than, you know, spending like, you know, 80 hours building a terrain set yeah. and then finding out it doesn't quite work with the game. Mm -hmm. You know, your buildings don't quite fit your squads in, you know, your yes. hedges, they cause arguments over whether they're hard cover or soft cover, or they cause arguments because are they, do you have a line of sight? You know, the, you know, some hedges should, you know, hedges should be built. So, you either have a line of sight or you don't, but there's no argument over it, you know? And if there is an argument, put an indicator on the base, a, a certain color flower tuff. Yeah, that says that, you know, you can see through that. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. that's the thoughts about, you know, good terrain enables gameplay. It doesn't just look pretty. Yeah, it reduces arguments. It reduces problems. I mean, wobbly model syndrome. Yes. It's that bad. We have a term for it. Yes. Yeah. So if if we if we know there's a problem in terrain making that that's bad, that everyone knows what I mean when I say mo wobbly model syndrome, we better start considering wobbly model syndrome at the start of the build. Yeah. I mean, the number of see events in Melbourne, uh, where I live, and uh, I had to bring dice boxes because I had to figure out exactly how tall the hills were so that when my models were halfway up it, I could prop up the back of my units on a dice yeah. box so they didn't just all fall out of the movement tray and chip. Because no one actually sat down and thought, right, I need placeable space on that hill. Yeah, What exactly. are the base sizes? Yep. You know, which is, you know, that's in the hill section. Start off with where you want to place models and carve the hill around that. Yeah, I was looking at what, some of your hill diagrams when I first opened the book and was like, huh, that's an interesting way of doing because the, the edges were, um, you know, short and sharp, uh, so to speak, uh, for some of, the, yeah. some of them. And I went, why is that? And then I, and I read it and went, oh, that makes perfect sense because you're not going to end yeah. up with that, that weird yeah, wobbly model syndrome. The, 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 the more, the more uh, not aggravated, the more, the more rocky. Mm -hmm. protruded and sloped a slope is yeah. the less playable space on the footprint of the piece mm -hmm. now with war game especially ranked and file games yeah you want a flat surface on yeah. the table 
and on your hill. So, you know, it's just about factoring in, hey, you can make, you know, with a little crisscross cross design, you can actually make quite, you know, a rock effect on this. Mm -hmm. But essentially, you're only losing half a, a centimetre circle exactly. yeah, of placeable space around it because mm -hmm. everything in the middle is flat. It makes a huge difference. Mm. Yeah. It enables the gameplay. It still looks good, and people look at it and go, well, okay, it doesn't really re look realistic, but you'll lose yourself in the game because you won't be arguing over the train. The train won't be a frustration that distracts from the gameplay, meaning you have to get your dice box and start stacking models up from the back. Mm -hmm. You know, the hill that's in the book, and I know the one you're talking about, which is basically a wedge of foam yes. with a crisscross. Yeah, it was designed to be, look, you can do this. Just this, you know, because if you look at it, you can see see clearly there's not even a little bit of clump foliage or tuft on the top of that mm -hmm. to stop a regiment base being placed squarely and comfortably slap bang on top of it or any war machine. Yeah. Well, I do want to quickly clarify if, if you haven't seen the book or if you're thinking about picking it up, Mel doesn't just tell you how to make one hill in the book. No, um, no, no. We should. Yeah, exactly. But I think no, that's. We, we go through difference and, you know, we, we cover different hills for different situations exactly. and different types of skirmish games. So there's another hill which suits skirmish warfare. Mm -hmm. There's a really nice. There's a couple of nice. What you call it? There's a volcanic one. We do a bouldery one, you know, which is basically, you know, no placement line of sight blocking. Yeah. You know, where we show off some cardboard techniques, you know, for alternate materials if you can't get foam and stuff like that. You know, so we cover lots of things, but every every single hill and every single project in there is is there to not illustrate itself, but illustrate numerous other techniques and, and purposes. That's right. I mean, the waterfall, it was done with cork bark because I hadn't done a cork bark hill properly in the book yet. So when we got to the waterfall section near the end of the book, it's covered in court bark purely so I can also illustrate court bark. Exactly. Uh, I, I, again, I can't understate that enough. I spend a lot of time with students um, teaching them about, you know, when we're writing, for example, being it's a, another creative endeavor. Um, we talk a lot about author purpose and what is your purpose as the author? Who are you trying to reach? Why are, you know, who is your audience? But the purpose is the thing that really throws kids because, you know, they're just so used to being told. And so for me as a war gamer, I'm so used to just thinking, yep, this is the way terrain works, that if I'm making my own or I'm going to get some from that someone else has made, I just go, oh, yeah, that, that kind of works. But opening up your book and really, you know, digging through it has really opened my eyes to, you know, some of the practicalities that, of course, are really obvious now that I read it but really opened my mind in a way that, you know, I think it was, is really valuable as, uh, as, as an experienced war gamer or a war gamer of any type when considering how to plan and design and just implement terrain on the tabletops that I play on. Yeah. Well, that, that's what it, that's, that's his purpose. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we sat down when we when you know when we put the content together of what it was to be, and it was to enable gameplay, and you know, and to write, exactly. put all the essentials for making beautiful terrain. And there were there's a lot of things in the book which aren't obvious that were very purposeful decisions. Yeah. I mean, if you flick through the book, what you'll also notice is the types of flocks and foliages I use change as you move through the book. True. Yeah. yeah. Now the reason for that is. 
I've, I've, I've taught the grass in the grass section, the flocking section, yeah, with my the, the materials I really like to use, mm -hmm. yeah. And then after that, I specifically change materials depending, yeah, mm -hmm. on whether I'd used those materials before. Just, I mean, after the grass work, the grass work didn't really matter in the woods and the hills and the, you know, the water and that sort of stuff. But they all, they're all different, yeah, just yeah. so I can illustrate multiple different types of flocking, yeah, in sections that aren't even flocking. And I don't even comment, yeah, that, hey, I did the flocking differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just when you look through it, you suddenly realize there's a lot of different types of flocking in here oh, yeah. outside the flocking section. Yes, I mean, there there's is. a couple of pages where they, I think on the hills page, there's about three or four different types of actually doing the grass work. Never mind the hills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's all about illustrating examples. So, right, we've told them. But if, if we've got an opportunity, if I had an opportunity to say, right, I can bring. I mean, the reason that the waterfall is a desert one. Yeah. is a rocky uh, sort of like, you know, Arizona sandstone -y sort mm -hmm. of look color to it. Yeah. Because it, it was an opportunity. I could have done that Greenfield. Get up, yeah. Quite easily. Yeah, there was nothing to gain other than, hey, I get to illustrate and put a couple of colours and a bit more information in. Yeah? Yeah. In the waterfall section about painting desert terrain. Yeah? So the waterfall section, actually, well, the waterfall and the river section, it's all about waterfall rivers. Yeah? But there's actually snippets of in there where I've actually made sure we cover the texture, foliage, colours, thoughts, you know, mm -hmm. for the desert. So we had a, a, an absolute massive list of information I wanted to put in. Yeah. Uh, the bulk of it got put in predefined sections and then everything else got sort of like shoehorned into little bits. Right. We can exact. We can, I can show that off via that. I can show that off via that. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, it's a lot like um, Dave's book in that. In armies, legions, and hordes, you see, you know, he talks about all the planning, and then he actually goes through specific examples and shows, in showing off different armies, different forces, um, different war bands, you get to see tons of different options. And in some cases, it's explicitly stated some of the choices that go with that. And in other choice, you just look at it and go, oh, that is different. Oh, I like what he did there. And I feel that your book does the same thing. As you say, you, you unpack the strategies and you unpack uh, how to make different things in different sections of the book as far as hills, um, flock, tabletops. There's there's tons of different options in there. But when you actually start getting through more examples later on, again, just like in Dave's book, you mix it up. And so you are really showing people different possibilities. And just like Dave's book, it's very inspiring. It, it, we just tried to pack it with as much information as possible without breaking the flow or making it appear like a technical manual or, you know, exactly. I mean, Dave did a wonderful, I mean, I'll be honest with you, Dave did, you know, help me with my writing style and, you know, we worked on flow techniques and mm -hmm. bullet pointing and expanding and how we were going to write. And then Dave laid it out beautifully, you know, illustrated it beautifully. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's over 550 pictures in the yes. book and only 10 of them i would say are there purely to look pretty mm -hmm. yeah you know in the intro these are the tables mel's made and there's a couple of photos in watch it in the planning section about hey here's some photos of yeah. a tournament 
Then after that, it's like this photo is here because we need to illustrate this point. True, but it doesn't take away from the artistic merit of the photo. It, no, you it, don't even notice it. Do exactly, you? right? Because flipping through it, you're like, wow, look at all this great terrain. But, you know, it could easily end up looking like an Ikea instruction manual, and it doesn't. Oh, well, uh, trust me. Yeah, if it had been left down to me, it would have. <laughs> right. Because that's how I would have approached it. Me too. Like a technical manual. Because yeah. that's how I do. I mean, I have a background in teaching, that sort yeah. of stuff. But it was Dave's editing skills and his layout skills and his, uh, and his, his knowledge of how to make appealing content. You know what I mean? He seemed yeah. to know exactly the right picture to pick. Yeah, to illustrate things, exactly. you know, because there were there were a lot of things where I mean, Dave may have put like 550 photos in there, yeah, mm-hmm. but Dave easily had about 5,000 photos to pick from. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's... So you know, and he I, somehow when I look at it, every time I look at it, and it's like I don't think I could have picked. A, I mean, perhaps with hindsight, looking back, I could have taken a better photo for Dave to use. Yeah. Yeah. But with regards to what Dave got, yeah, out of what I sent him, of what I took, yeah, I couldn't pick better photos. No, exactly. And I think, I mean, it makes me kind of want to see the other 4,500. There's a drive out there somewhere that's full of awesome photos that I can just flip through. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, there is. Brilliant. And it's actually got projects in that aren't even in the book and sections, yeah, that were written that didn't make the book. Uh, cough, yeah, cough, insert sequel comment here, cough, cough. I don't know. Uh, there's talk. You know, okay. we, me and Dave have obviously talked about a sequel, and, you know, I think I'd like it, but right now both me and Dave, you know, Dave needs to get back to his stuff because he had a lot of projects on hold, yeah. you know, while I was, you know, while Terrain Essentials. So he's got his focus to get back to. Exactly. I want to get back to the channel. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, we, we speak every couple of weeks. You know, and we hang out mm-hmm. and vid call and that sort of stuff. So I can see a book two in the future. Yeah. But, you know, got to get back in the saddle first, especially after, you know, 2020. I was about to say 2020 as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the irony, 2020. Eyesight score. No one saw that one coming. Mm-hmm. Yes. Literally no one. Um, no one. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk. Um Terrain Essentials was available via Kickstarter. And I know a lot of people got it from there. I know, I mean, hashtag COVID, everyone had a little bit of a slowdown with shipping and whatnot. But everyone uh, has got their books at this point uh, because now... There may be a a few odds and sods. There's still a few that we haven't yet confirmed, but we're talking a handful of people out of five and a half thousand. Exactly. But if now that... Those have gone out, I should say. Um, now it's commercially available. Uh, and for those who are looking for it, uh, I think the easiest way, and Mel, maybe you can correct me here, but I know how I'm in, I'm getting mine, which is uh, yeah. from Warlord Games. Um, yeah. They have a well, beautiful... First and distrib- foremost, yeah. Yep. I recommend you get you contact your FLGS, yeah, and order it through Absolutely. them. Because me and Dave are su- supporting bricks and mortar stores and, you know, your retail chains. Well said. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but if you do need it, obviously, yeah, if you can't, if your FLGS uh, can't get it, and if they deal with Warlord, or if in the in the US and Canada and they they deal with Alliance or Bridge Distribution, mm-hmm. they can order it from them. But if you can't, if you're in the rest of the world or Europe, UK, you can get it directly from the Warlord Games website. Right. Yeah, and if you're in the US and Canada, then Ironheart Artisans. That's yeah, right. Yeah, I have a carrier stock. 
yeah and they can get it to you uh, i'd recommend the u.s people go for ironheart artisans simply because of current shipping with covid mm -hmm. and everything like that yeah but if you rest the world and you can't get it through your flgs go and watch it you can jump on uh watch it wall, the wall of website yeah now, having spoken to my local friendly game store um i do know that they are getting it uh but it again ask because it may be a week away um, and if you're well, going to order also, it, if, if, if you're going to order it, it from get... Warlord because your local game store doesn't have it, you may end up waiting longer by ordering it from Warlord. And I do love Warlord. Obviously, I do their podcast. Mm. However, um, as we do like to support the local game store. So do ask, because if they can get, if they are already about to get it, it is definitely worth the wait there because yeah. ship times. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, there'll be a lot of people who go straight to Warlord and Ironheart, obviously, and they're, they're free to do that. And, you know, they're buying the book, they're helping me, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So exactly. it's all good. But right. I would like to see it in stores. And it, it's not so much getting your book from a store, but if the store just carries a copy, just yes. one extra copy on the shelf, mm -hmm. yeah, then who knows who may come across and discover a world of terrain. You know, it's not just about I know about this book and I want to get my hands on it. You know, I wrote the book to help people build terrain, and that includes people who've never never heard of me mm. or never heard of Terrain Essentials. So supporting the FLGSs and actually having it on the shelves for people to look through and realize they can build great tables is actually quite important beyond, you know, the, the standard hobby, you know, support the FLGS because that's where we play. Exactly. So, guys, if you are going to get the book, just check out your local store and let's see if we can get it on the shelves. You know, that would be cool. But yeah, basic Brad, what you call it? Uh, you know, it's out, it's in retail, it's all exciting, mate, and I don't know where it's going to go next. Exactly, exactly. Well, Mel, I guess that brings us to the next big question as we sort of wrap things up today. Now that the book's out, now that it's gone out mm -hmm. to the Kickstarter uh, supporters, now that it is on its way to retail shops, now that Warlord's carrying it and Ironheart's carrying it, and everyone can collectively, I guess, take a breath and figure out what's next. Um, what's next for oh, you guys, or for you personally? Back in the saddle, mate. Uh, I've been in my studio today, actually, with my lad, and we're just pulling out terrain for the Burma build, the roads mm -hmm. that I need to get stuck into, and I'm back in this weekend working on those. Nice. I've got a ton of Kill Team stuff behind me, mm -hmm. yeah, that I need to start detailing up because I want to do a really high detail Kill Team sort of like narrative gaming board. Yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've got about £500 worth of Kill Team plastic behind me, and I'm, I've bought a Oof. 3D printer, yeah, to start mass-producing barrels and valves mm -hmm. and all sorts of stuff. You know, so I've got some really good projects. But I think above all, the next thing for me is to get it back in front of the camera, you know what I mean, and get yeah. my mojo back and, you know, just keep making a mess and doing the things I do in the video that people seem to like so much. Yeah. Yes, please do. I, I'm looking forward to seeing more of the Burma videos because, as I said, I mean, you've got 12 already, um, and that's just for one table. But if you're going to start adding more, as you say, oh, roads, yeah, we've got river right? systems, we've got roads to add mm -hmm. to it, we've got jungle villages, we've oh, got yes. a white city, which is the in the middle of the jungle, uh, mm -hmm. defensive position set up by the Chindits that was done by Airdrop. And it was called White City because all the trees were covered in parachutes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice. 
Yeah, so we've got all the trees to cover in parachutes and that sort of stuff. And then obviously we've got down planes from one air commando. You know, we've got paddy fields to do. We've got long jungle grass to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a ton of stuff to do on Burma Build, matey, to be perfectly honest. I was going to ask, so how big is this table? But that's the beauty of terrain. Like You can, I, you can have bits and pieces that come in and out. Ideally, I want it to be round about what you call it, uh, six foot by eighteen foot. <laughs> That's Heavy a jungle. big table. Yeah. Oh. I I want I specifically. I I mean, I built it. In, in, I, I planned it specifically. You know. Yeah. To do this, I mean, I've already got eighteen foot of roads, and I'm only building them for a six by four table. But I can already do eighteen foot of road. In a straight line if i need to jesus i thought when i bought six meters of in real life six meters of um little walls for my bolt action tables that was a lot and it was a lot to be fair but yeah jesus. that's a fair amount but no no what you call it uh i have this idea of when i finally build it either at salute or warlord games open day go down set up a table yeah yeah and then do some sort of charity battle for the chindit drive for the remaining chindits who are still alive oh that would be awesome man that would be absolutely awesome yeah you know imagine it a six foot by eight foot terrain shooter table Mm -hmm. yeah and then literally bring your armies guys you gotta bring chindits or japs yeah you know and how i i wanted Blood Eagle Pass was something like that, six foot by, what you call it, uh, 18 foot or 24 foot. The first 24-hour charity game in White Dwarf 124. Yes, it was, right? Yeah, it was. And you wouldn't believe how iconic and how much. I mean, I read that article probably about 17 times. Mm -hmm. That article was my introduction because the rest of the White Dwarf at the time was very rulesy. Yeah, you know, where they put loads of rules in. So I didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. But that one article, because it was talking about the gaming experience and, you know, mm-hmm. how the game played out, you know, it was so immersive for me because you didn't need the prior knowledge to fall in love with it. And so it's always rattled around in my head of, yeah, I want to do that. You know, when I was starting mm-hmm. to put the Burma build together, it was like, I don't want a small table. And then it's like, no, I want to, I want to put on. And, you know, over time, it's like, no, this is, this is my battle for Blood Eagle Pass. Yeah. You know, so I reckon a six foot by 18 or 24 foot will go for. Brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, full heavy jungle, tiger grass, paddy fields, roads running through defensive positions, the lot. Oh, man, you should see the smile on my face. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, Mel, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, that is definitely something to watch for. Uh, now, of course, if you want to see more of the videos that we're talking about, and of course, it isn't just the Burma table. Mel's done countless videos. I was watching a blood shrine uh, the other day. Uh, and yep, yep. If, if you are interested, go to YouTube, go to The Terrain Tutor, uh, and you can watch... Mel talk about all sorts of great terrain but guys a lot of the terrain um, strategies and some of the tips and tricks that Mel's using in those videos go into further depth in the book but again I think the thing that sells the book 
more than anything else is is that purpose. It's the really it's the consideration of planning. It's the inspirational pictures that shows you the same strategies used a bunch of different ways that make you go, yeah, oh, I can do that. I should have thought of that. Again, well, it's really cleverly done. Thanks, mate. I mean, condensing 500 terrain videos into one book and bringing them all up to date. Right. It was a challenge, but it, yeah. it's turned out well. Yeah, I would say that is an understatement. But yes, uh, <laughs> Terrain Essentials is the name of the book. If you haven't asked your FLGS about it, get out there and ask. And uh, of course, if you can't, we have talked about Warlord Games and Ironheart. But again, especially if you're wondering or worrying about ship times, because nothing's consistent after 2020 at the moment. Um, <laughs> definitely, definitely ask. It's worth an ask. And please check it out. It is absolutely worth it. I highly recommend Mel, thank you so much for coming on today, man. I appreciate your time. I know you had to stay up late for this, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you, man. Absolute, absolute blast, mate. I had a great time. You have a good one, Brad. You too. And guys, thank you so much. I know a bunch of you have commented uh, in recent weeks slash months um, asking if I'd seen Mel's videos. Of course I had. Um, but, you know, again, this is an example of an episode that – came from you guys. It came from people who listen to the show. So if you have any suggestions for the show or you like what we're doing here or you really don't like something that I'm doing, uh, please let us know. Uh, go to Cast Dice on Facebook, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you message the page, there is only one person who responds. That's me. Hi, my name is Brad. Um, it may take me a day or two, given time zone of where you are and where I am, to, uh, to reply, but you are guaranteed to reply every single time. And to everyone, of course, who, uh, who, who had a nice message for me after my surgery recently on my mouth, um, yes, I'm back. This is a new episode post-surgery. Uh, and thank you for all the well wishes. It's really appreciated. Thanks, guys. And I guess that just leaves us with what our old buddy Casey always says. When you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. Hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.